This episode of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is made possible thanks to support from listeners like you. So if you enjoy the show and want it to continue, please sign up to give us a dollar or two per episode over at patreon.com geeks. And if you'd rather make a one-time contribution, you can do that via check or PayPal over at geeksguideshow.com crowdfunding. And I want to give a special thank you to Marco Mueller, who just signed up this week to support us on Patreon. So big thanks again to everyone who's contributed. We really appreciate it. All right, so now let's get to our show. Wired.com presents The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. And here is your host, David Barr Kirtley. Hello, and welcome to episode 439 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Our guest today is Neil Pollock. He's the author of 11 books including the memoirs Pothead and Alternidad, the novels Jewball and Downward Facing Death, and the essay collection The Neopolic Anthology of American Literature. And we'll be speaking with him today about his humorous science fiction novels Repeat and Keep Mars Weird. And now here's our interview with Neil Pollock. All right, so we're here with Neil Pollock. Welcome to the show. Hey, thank you for having me. So first of all, how big of a fantasy and science fiction fan are you? I would consider myself a, a fairly a big fantasy and science fiction fan. I, I, I'm not. I don't. I don't have a, a deep knowledge of the genre, but obviously, um, apparently, I was honestly I was surprised when you you emailed me because I, to do this because I have written a couple of sci-fi fantasy novels, but uh, I don't really consider myself a sci-fi fantasy writer. And I wrote those two books that we're going to talk about. Um, during a, a, a period in uh, my career, I was just kind of pumping out genre novels every two or three months. Um, that said, I do, you know, I certainly watch a lot of sci-fi and fantasy. I read a fair amount of it. And, uh, you know, it, it was it was extremely fun to, to join those ranks. Yeah, so I heard you say that you were a big Doctor Who fan growing up and you collected Fantastic Four, stuff like that. Let's see. Yeah, I mean, I, um, I watched... I watched Doctor Who on PBS. You know, I'm 50 years old, so when I when when I was a kid, Doctor Who was available once a day on the local PBS station. Um, mostly the Tom Baker episodes, and close to when they were original. Maybe they were a year behind. I'm not exactly sure. And then maybe some of the ones before, some of the John Pertwee ones, earlier ones, and then around the Peter Davison era, I I I, I gave up because it was just. It was too bad, even for a kid. You know, I couldn't. I, I couldn't deal with it. Um, and then I picked it up again um, when they rebooted it. I, you know, I loved the Christopher Eccleston years, the David Tennant, and most of the Matt Smith. And then I kind of faded away from it again. I just, I felt like it. I don't know. Kind of turned into a romance novel uh, to me. I, I kind of gave up on Doctor Who around the um, time where they um, made Rory an immortal Roman gladiator. I, I just didn't. I just didn't buy into that. Yeah. But so are there any other science fiction things that have big, been big uh, influences on you? Like in repeat, you have the character go see Empire Strikes Back 60 times and stuff like that. Oh, I mean, yeah, I've seen every Star Wars movie and many of the TV versions of it. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I, I'm fair, I have a fairly good, deep knowledge of Star Trek. Um, I, you know, I, I don't know. I watched all of, Game of Thrones. I, I mean, I, I've, I've seen, you know, pretty much anything with spaceships flying around. I'll go see. <laughs> I, you know, I, I grew, you know, I Star Wars came out when I was seven, so um, that leaves a big imprint on you. You know, you want you you learn to sort of to me going to the movies means seeing spaceships flying around. Yeah. And so you said, yeah. So the the two novels that we're gonna that I read that we're gonna talk about are Repeat and Keep Mars Weird. Yeah. Um, and I was just kind of, I, I don't actually remember now how I came across your website, but, uh, you know, I've just kind of been, I just recently moved to Austin. So I've been kind of interested in uh, writers in Austin. And so I was looking at your page and those books look inter- looked interesting. And I'm, I'm, as you might guess from the title of the show, I'm a big fan of humorous um, science fiction. Right. There's never enough of that. So, um, well, 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 right. Right. And I, and I certainly, um, you know, I loved the Douglas Adams books when, uh, when I was a kid. You know, I, I, I devoured those. And I, and I also loved the old PBS miniseries version of it, which to me uh, remains, I guess the, I guess the radio serial was yeah. really the best version, but, um, you know, as opposed to the movie, 
with Martin Freeman and Mo's Depp, I, I consider the uh, the PBS version to be be that's the canon for me. Yeah, I mean, I, I have read the books, and but uh, you know, uh, my parents owned the um, you know the the original BBC radio dramas uh, when I was right. growing up, and we just listened to those over and over again. So I'm mostly right. a Psychers Guide fan from the from the radio dramas. Sure. Um, but so you said, um, so kind of what, I, I guess, first of all, are repeat and keep Mars weird. Would you say those are the works of yours that would have the most, uh, appeal to science fiction fans? Well, I mean, keep Mars weird is a, is a straight up, you know, sci-fi space opera, political satire. So that, that one certainly, um, for, for people who like the genre, uh, fits, you know, repeat is sort of a, um, how should you put it? Like a time traveling romantic comedy. Right. So I, I wouldn't call repeat hard sci-fi or anything. You know, it's a, it's one of those infinite time. I, I listened to your episode. You had the infinite time loop uh, yeah, movie yeah. episode recently. And I listened to that and, uh, you know, it kind of fits within that sub genre of sci-fi and fantasy. Yeah. So, so in the book, it's sort of, uh, it's like Groundhog Day, except instead of reliving one day, the character is reliving the first 40 years of his life. And then on his you know, the last night of before his 40th birthday, he, he wakes up in the womb and, and relives you know, <laughs> 1970 to 2010 over and over again. Right, right. That's the sort of the general premise. And he doesn't and, and, and the way I played it was, you know, he doesn't relive the exact same life over and over again. Um, he uh, kind of it's like a choose your own adventure. Right. Um, you know, he can do whatever he wants with the, that time. And uh, he um, so. uh it makes it hard when he's a kid, obviously, because he's under the control of his uh, of his parents, uh, and he also retains all the memories of his previous incarnations. So, you know, he by he starts coming out of the womb as as a genius baby. Basically, <laughs> he can always he can he can already read and write and and uh, knows everything that's going to happen uh, in politics and in culture, and um, you know it. it drives his parents crazy and it makes him, you know, a, a very frighteningly precocious uh, kid. And so like in the book, he just takes various paths and none of them make him happy. Do you remember when you first, how you first got the idea you wanted to write this book about a guy reliving his life over and over again? You know, I, I think that's just a fantasy that a lot of people have. Um, and you know, I turned 40 and when you turn 40, that's, you know, that's a, that's a time when people start to reckon with the choices they've made and the path they've taken. And they start wondering what would have happened if I'd chosen a different career or if I married someone else or if I had kids or if I hadn't had kids. So I don't remember the exact moment, but, uh, you know, it, it was just an idea that had been brewing in my head for a while. And you said that you wrote it in two or three months? Yeah, I tend to write pretty fast. So, um, yeah, the initial draft anyway. I, 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 you know, for a book that's, say, between 50 and 70,000 words, which most, most of my books are, I tend, to, I tend to pump them out pretty quickly. I don't like to linger um, with my prose. I just kind of like to, you know, get the scenes down and, um, you know, land as many jokes as I can. <laughs> And, um, so, so, so I wouldn't say that I'm a very sort of careful writer. Well, I, th I thought the, I thought both these books were really good and, you know, they, um, you know, I, I, they carried me along and I laughed out loud more than I have, uh, reading anything for a long time. And I thought, oh, they well, had, thank you. Had satisfying, uh, conclusions and everything. And I really like, you know, when I was, um, Growing up, a lot of the books I read had been published in the 60s and 70s, and at that yes. time, science fiction novels had – basically, they all had to be 60,000 words long, you know, and right. no longer. And uh, I'm still not persuaded that there's really any reason for most books to be longer than about 60,000 words long. Uh, you know, I think – I, I, I say 75 is like your outer limits. Um, I agree. Like I, I oftentimes, by the final th quarter, third of a book, I'm, I'm like, I'm ready for the next book. <laughs> you know, yeah. and and I I feel like there's 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 a lot of fat that could get edited out of books, and I think also like there's a lot of books that could could stand uh, for a more linear narrative. I try as best I can to go you know A to B to C and try not to you know fart around with flashbacks or like you know multiple points of view. I I, 
I don't know. I just don't think like that. I think very straightforwardly like, like you, like I grew up reading books that were short and kind of punchy and fun. And I try, when I write, when I get around to writing a book, I try to do the same thing that maybe, maybe some, some poor kid's going to stumble upon my work at the library and, you know, it it can help them kill an afternoon or something. (laughs) So the things that the character in the book is named in repeat is named Brad Cohen. And mm-hmm. in his various lives, he's uh, he starts out in his you know first initial life. He's a failed screenwriter, and then he variously becomes a political pundit, a Jeopardy contestant, sort of a druggy hedonist, and uh, kind of a seeker after enlightenment. Are those all the things that you would do if you could uh, live your life over and over again? You know, yeah, and they're also all things I have done in my my one life. <laughs> um, I was on Jeopardy. Um, I have done some political punditry like, like Brad, I I was an intern at the new Republic, uh, magazine in 1990. It was an annoying, 91, I'm sorry. It was an annoying time and place, but it, you know, it, 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 it gave me a look into, um, that culture and those types of people. Um, I have, I, I have, I practice yoga and I did a yoga teacher training, um, and so I've done pretty deep dive into that. Um, trying to, what was the, what was the drug, other one you mentioned? Drug, oh, the drugs. Yeah. I've done lots and lots of drugs. I, my, my most recent book, Pothead is a memoir of, uh, my addiction to and recovery from marijuana, uh, which I was a very heavy user of for like most of my life, adult life anyway. Um, so yeah, so these are all, uh, these, I guess these are all sort of aspects of my actual personality. Yeah, I mean, I, I was noticing that you've just done an incredible number of things you mentioned. I mean, also, I had a couple other. You like pay, uh, you play competitive poker, do pub trivia. Yes, uh, you were on the Daily Show. I mean, it, it's it's. I was. I mean, that's. I would being on the Daily Show was like a a very fortunate sort of book publicity moment. It was not like something I do. I mean, I wish I could <laughs> be on the Daily, sh- you know, or something, you know, or some kind of show. I, I, I'd like being on TV. It's. It's fun and, and easy compared to other things that you have to do in life. Um, yeah, so I, I've had, you know, I've, I've been blessed with some some pretty amazing experiences. Yeah, and you've written 11 books. I mean, it just seems you seem to have done a lot and be very productive, um, you know. It, Which is it, odd because I don't, I don't feel like I do anything, <laughs> <laughs> especially like the last seven months. It's like, do I do, I, do, I do anything? You know, going to, going to Costco is like a huge deal. But so do you think um, if you were um, smoking so much marijuana, do you did that like if you hadn't, would you have written like 22 books or would it be pretty much the same thing? I think it would be more or less the same number of books. I might have written one or two more. I mean, you know, that that 11 books all came in 20 years. So it's not like I've, I started when I was age two. And, it, you know, uh, but I think that um, I think my books probably would have had a lot less marijuana in them. <laughs> The marijuana kind of like there's a lot. I mean, drugs were a huge priority for me, especially uh, toward the end of my addiction. There, you know, when, I, when I'm getting ready to start production on, on another book, and I'm going to try to like keep the drugs very low. There, the main character doesn't do drugs. It's not going to be a major theme. Yeah. Well, maybe we'll come back to that. But I was curious: was there anything um, in repeat that you considered having Brad do that you just decided not to, like, didn't have space for, or decided didn't fit in the book, or whatever? Not really. Like I said, I mean, I almost, you know, I have improv training, right? I studied improv with um with Del Close in Chicago, the legendary Del Close, and I was in an improv troupe when I lived in when I was a I worked as a newspaper reporter in Chicago, and I was in, in an improv troupe then, and. uh I just kind of improvised the book in a, in a way. Uh, so I didn't, I didn't really like, there weren't any real discarded scenarios. You know, there are of course lots of um, things I could have had the main character do. Um, but you know, the thing is I couldn't have had him become like a professional athlete or something because those are certain things cannot be, um, you can't just do them because you want to, right. You have to have talent physical ability i suppose i could have had to become like a like a, i don't know like a weightlifter or something but so so they were they're all just kind of a, these are mostly like intellectual pursuits that he undertakes right yeah i guess if you listen to our time loop episode you know we were really getting into the nitty-gritty of how would you actually you know what would the biology be of, of these memories uh, coming back and everything 
And that was yeah, making, I don't know. making me wonder in this, do, do, do you happen to know if a, a baby's, because I've heard that babies don't actually remember anything until they're X number of months old. Do you know if, mm. if a baby somehow, if, if this were to happen, would a baby's brain biologically be able to hold an adult's memory? That is a good question. I just know that I wanted to write a birth scene um, <laughs> with someone aware of what was happening to them. You know, I mean, that scene has a there's a kind of a gross out factor to that that set piece where he's born again, literally born again. Um, you know, and then oh, and then of course the comedy of like a, a person with an adult man's awareness having to breastfeed to survive. <laughs> you know that that that, that scene was. Uh, when 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 people were reading this thing, you know, in larger numbers, they're not, you know, it came out many years ago now. So uh, that, that that scene actually grossed a lot of people out. <laughs> the breast the breastfeeding scene, as I recall, uh, I think Ray Bradbury actually claimed to be able to remember being in the womb. Uh, mm. I don't know what to make of that exactly, but but he wasn't, you know, he didn't go back to the womb. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, there's that. Yeah, the the womb. That's kind of you know, like the. Um, like that, uh, like the movie uh, with the James Franco made fun of. No, that that's okay. Anyway, um, well, there's the movie it. with uh, Ashton Kutcher, uh, the butterfly effect. The butterfly effect. Yeah, yeah. Look, I'm not. There's also a book which I found out after I published Repeat called Replay, uh, which is like a British sci-fi novel from the 70s or 80s, which has a very similar premise. Um, and uh, I didn't. I wasn't aware of that until after this came out. Uh, so. This is a genre of, of book. It's not like no one has ever come up with this idea before. It's just kind of my take on it. Yeah, but I mean, I think it's, I mean, like the, um, when he becomes a pundit, knowing ahead of time everything that's going to happen, I thought that was really, really gripping. And I'd, I'd never seen that specific scenario in, in any science fiction book before. Sort of, sort of, sort of a, uh, uh, like a, a, like a, a wonk thriller. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Like he, he he rises to power in Washington D.C. because he knows exactly who's going to win elections. I mean, that is you know that is a uh, quite a skill. Yeah. So I mean, if you're intro, I mean, I don't know, you know, if that just to me specifically that you know that sort of hits multiple interests of mine. But uh, I, I really yeah, thought that yeah. was uh, compelling. Well, and again, like I have been a professional journalist. And I have, you know, and, and I've worked, you know, with those types of people. So, um, you know, I, I, I kind of saw how um, venal it all is, you know, how, how kind of pointless that the, the game is. And so I wanted to riff off of that a little bit. I was curious because there's a part where um, the character who's lived life before and knows what's going to happen t- tells the people that Donald Trump could be president one day and, and they say, oh, no, that could never happen. That's ridiculous. And, was, and the book was published, I think, in 2015. So it must have been written earlier. Like what was how well, likely- Trump, tr- Trump was running, you know, and uh, yeah, I mean, I, I guess I just kind of I, I guess I uh, I took that whole situation seriously before other people did. Or if I don't know if I took it seriously, but I I, I, um, I saw it developing and I saw the way people were reacting to it. And I was like, I don't know, guys, this is America. You know, this is a country. Wrestling's very popular here, <laughs> you know, and so yeah. is Donald Trump. And, you know, the Democrats uh, have a kind of a snotty snot elitism problem. And uh, I would watch it, <laughs> you know, <laughs> don't don't be so cocky. Yeah, well, absolutely. And, you know, my I've been together with my girlfriend for seven or eight years and she can um confirm this but you know in that entire time i've never been uh anxious about anything that's going to happen yeah except twice and mm-hmm. once was i predicted covid was going to be a big deal when everyone yeah. said it was nothing and right. i also in summer 2015 i predicted that donald trump had a good chance of becoming president when i hadn't yeah. heard anyone say anything other than it was a giant joke so yeah i think i got a pretty yeah. good track record there yeah well good for you you know for predicting those two uh you know i'm glorious event right? <laughs> uh yeah i i can't say i really like saw covid coming it just kind of ran over me like a freight train the whole this whole situation i mean i'm, I, I'm as used to it now as i can be but i'm actually that's and i'm actually gonna write um i think my next book is gonna be a sort of a dystopian future sci-fi post-covid 
book, but not a dystopia like uh, like The Road or anything. Just uh, sort of a it's a little bit more like Keep Mars Weird in that in that sense. Yeah, well, that's definitely I'm definitely looking forward to that. Um, so yeah. But yeah, so let's talk about Keep Mars Weird. So you want to say sure. more about how that like? Do you remember how you got the idea for that? Well, I live in Austin, like uh, apparently you do as well. And yeah. welcome, welcome. Well, uh, well, you that, know, it's, there used to be live music here. I don't know if you if you were here in time for that, but no, I, um, I haven't actually like really seen this. I mean, I, I actually lived in Austin for a year when I was just out of college, so like twenty years uh, ago. But you okay. know, we we moved here because my girlfriend is doing an MFA at Texas State. Um, uh-huh. but we moved here just like, we sort of like moved here, like unpacked all our stuff, which took a couple months. And then we've been locked in our apartment ever since. Yeah. So. Yeah. Well, you know, there used to be stuff to do, um, <laughs> here, but, uh, yeah. So, uh, but, uh, you know, so I, uh, I've lived here on and off for 20 years and I have just sort of gradually watched it go from being a, um, you know, a party town with a sort of a laid back, um, uh, you know, culture to being this fancy schmancy tech hub. And so, um, and, and watch, watch, I just, it's like watching, you know, gentrification and in, in real time, like watching, or just like watching ladies scuffed up shoes getting polished. Right. And so I want, I, uh, and I found the whole, um, the whole marketing of that Bohemia and turning it into this, um, this, sort of simulacrum of what it once was, uh, you know, I, I just thought it was, it found it ridiculous and also kind of hilarious. So, uh, you know, keep Mars weird is my, um, it's like a, you know, it's a futuristic, uh, sci-fi take on gentrification basically. And the, uh, the book be the first part of the book takes place in an Austin. I, I, I think our, it's a couple hundred years in the future, where global warming has um, decimated the United States and, you know, flooded the coasts and all that. And Austin has become this like coastal metropolis and the, the international center of commerce and culture. And this is sort of gorgeous shining city on a hill, kind of a combination of like Sydney, Australia and, um, and Austin itself, but, and, 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 you know, Shanghai, like, it's like the, the, ultimate city of the future, but, uh, at where every, everybody is wealthy and everybody is successful and everybody is happy, but it's also kind of boring. So, um, when young people are seeking that kind of bohemian adventure that young people do specifically in this book, a couple of young men, they go, they hop on a rocket and they, they go to space and, uh, Mars has that sort of reputation of like old Austin. You know, or like said, or or nineteen seventies New York. You know, this sort of gritty bohemian party place. Do you want to just explain the title? Keep Mars weird. Sure. Well, Austin has developed over the over the years developed this slogan: "Keep Austin weird," um, which was sort of cooked up by independent businesses when. Um, gentrification started to sort of and, and generic culture started to overwhelm the uh, old funky Austin a little bit, but it was just developed. It was just like co-opted by the city government and like by corporate culture and, uh, and by South by Southwest, which started off as like an indie rock festival, but really just kind of became a commercial for technology. Um, and it was co-opted and weirdness became something that was a, a corporate um, buzzword. Uh, so people could come down here and feel funky for a few days before <laughs> f- flying back to their, you know, their, uh, expensive condos or mansions or whatever. So, um, so in the book, keep Mars weird kind of serves that same function, like the powers that be that run Mars use keep Mars weird as a, as a way, as a marketing slogan to sort of. Jet, like early Mars was kind of was was kind of dirty and down home and funky and a little bit country, a little bit punk rock, and uh, and as the book starts, it's art. It's like it's in sort of a mid mid stage gentrification situation. Yeah, well, let me read this part. So this is one of the uh, revolutionaries on Mars, just describing how great Mars used to be. Sure. 
And he says, there were restaurants that stayed open all day and never had any customers on purpose. You could sit in a ditch and play ukulele and someone would make a movie about you. We had a thing called Flying Tits Week where everyone would make these fake tit drones and fly them around. There was one guy who used to ride around naked on a unicycle and nobody cared. That's what Mars was all about. So is that sort of what Austin used to be like? or That is the imagined idea of what old Austinites think Austin used to be like, right? So... I mean, there there was a, there was a lot of weird culture here. Don't get me wrong, like genuinely like strange Bohemia, but uh, you know, it was all you know. It's in some ways it was also like none of that stuff actually sounds that appealing, right? <laughs> that you just read about it all sounds kind of kind of gross and shitty. Uh, but it is true that like, it, but but it was it does have like it did have sort of an authenticity about it. Um, and you know, the character that we're talking about there, the, the you know the revolutionaries are, are, are like are complete drugged out idiots. You know, they have no idea what they're doing. Um, their 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 aims are kind of suspect in in, in, um, in their own right. So they're not to be trusted either. But but yeah, that's that that's sort of a parody of like um, what like people who have been around a scene for a long time say when a scene that you, the scene used to be like that. Like I lived in Chicago for a long time and, you know, Chicago, you know, I've been back there, you know, within the last year. It's like the last place. I really visited before, you know, traveling became something that you don't do anymore. Um, and it was still plenty gritty, you know, and, but, but, but 20 years ago, everyone was like, man, the city's gotten so gentrified. There's no real, no one's real anymore. There's nothing real to do. There's, you know, the, 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 um, the, the, the old vibe is gone. That's just uh, a rap you hear constantly, no matter yeah, well, where you are. Well, because, you know, I was feeling pretty good about our, you know, we, we moved from New York. And so moving t- to here, we were like, wow, now we can, we're living in an apartment that's twice as big where the rent is half as much and, and all these other mm-hmm. various, you know, the weather's nice and all this various quality of life improvements. But then, you know, reading your book was the first thing that made me think like, oh, wait, did we make a mistake coming here? Because it's kind of like, it's like the opposite of a love letter to Austin, it seems like. I, I don't hate Austin. I mean, I, I have, you know, I, I've lived here a long time and it's, you know, it's, you know, it's been it's a generally relaxing place to live with good weather for the most part and good movie theaters, good music, good tacos. You know, it's not like it's, it's it, there's a lot worse places to, um, to sort of ride out the pandemic than Austin, Texas. But at the same time, you know, let, let, let's not kid ourselves and think that like, it's, it's what it used to be, you know, that it's, it's not like it doesn't, you know, thir- 20, 25 years ago, it was super chill and small and easy to get around that's just the way it is, you know, you know, and now you might, you might be able to move back to New York and get a much, get your old apartment <laughs> back, back for a lot cheaper because New York is a, is a, is a, um, is sort of degentrifying yeah. in, in real time, in real time. Um, you know, these things move in cycles, but, um, it's also like, why would you want to live there? Yeah. Yeah. Well, so what do you think? I mean, because you make in the book, you make fun of like Mars by Mars and the Summit Summit. Could yeah. you talk about like how those sure. relate to the real Austin? Sure. Well, that, that those are parodies of um, South by Southwest, which, like I was saying before, is a, um, you know, it's like a cultural festival. But like, you know, when it started back in the late 80s, it was um, mid to late 80s. Um, it was just a indie rock fa- uh, festival. You know, it's just like people playing guitar and shitty bars. And then, you know, gradually the industry kind of glommed onto it and became sort of slightly bigger profile bands playing in slightly nicer bars. But for, you know, a good 15 years, it was just music. And then the tech industry got a hold of it uh, and started turning it into this like networking platform. There's also a film festival uh, attached to it, which, which, is fine, except that that you know when it was like you know small indie films, but then like you started having major Hollywood premieres, and then and then you had these you know you had HBO shows doing act corporate activations to promote their 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 um their new product, and you know Twitter got discovered here, and you know Twitter is like the source of all evil on the planet, and yeah. um you know at that moment the the all the everything was evil about big tech sort of descended upon Austin and swallowed it whole. Um, so you had this is the ultimate example of cultural co-optation. 
So ha- have you been involved at all with the Southwest Southwest? Or do you oh, yeah, yeah, many, many times. The- yeah, I have, a, I have a band. I've played uh, showcases at least a half dozen times. I've spoken at the tech conference. I've given I've given readings for my books. In fact, I get I, I was uh, scheduled to give a reading from Keep Mars Weird at South by Southwest the year it came out. And I mean, I did give a reading, but but that was the but it happened to be opposite a, a, a keynote speech by Barack Obama. <laughs> um, you know, which was announced later, but it happened to be scheduled literally at the exact same time as my my reading. So my reading was attended by you know a half a person. <laughs> so uh yeah i have my i, I you know i you know I, I have my uh my history with south by southwest and you know so you know most people in austin don't mind when you make fun of south by southwest it's part of living here is making fun of it you know you don't you know not everyone is like you know marching in in lockstep with the, the south by southwest agenda if there is one, and let's face it, the festival is like a major economic driver for the city. It was a tragedy when COVID nineteen shut it down. A lot of people were thrown out of work. Uh, a lot of uh, a lot of bands from around the world didn't get a chance to come show their wares, and you know it's it sucked. You know, we I, I missed it when it was gone. I'll be glad when it when I can go, you know, wander around and listen to you know Japanese punk rock bands again. <laughs> What is like? What has been your experience with sort of the, the literary scene in Austin? Like, do you hang out with other writers, or like, are there events? Yeah, yeah, of course, yeah, of course. I mean, it's not like New York where every other person you meet is a writer. Um, so yeah, we all, yeah, you know, most of us know one another. I mean, there aren't a ton of professional writers working in Austin. A lot, of, and a lot of the ones who are here are you know they're journalists or nonfiction writers. Uh, most of the fiction people, like you know your. Um, like your your partner uh, come to get their MFA at uh, UT or Texas State and linger around for a few years, uh, give some readings, and then go somewhere else when they get a job. Uh, so there've been lots of people who have kind of floated through and, and floated away. And there are, but there are you know there's a community of people who are permanent here. Most of them associated with the universities, uh, and I you know know most of them. I wouldn't say that the scene is you know booming but there's stuff you know but there's you know the texas book festival when you know we're allowed to leave the house is is, is a nice uh, sort of um marquee event and you can a lot of writers come to come to town and that's another thing too is because of book people and other you know cultural institutions writers do come to town so you can see people and you know that's one of the things that's nice about austin is that it's uh, you get you know most things that are good float through here one way or another. So there's, you know, it's a great city to be a fan in. Yeah, that's cool. I'm definitely looking forward to going to all that stuff uh, someday. Yeah. Um, 2023 should be, should be <laughs> really good, good year for you. Yeah. So, um, keep Mars weird is published by Amazon's, um, 47 North imprint. Yes. And you want to talk about what was your, what was your experience with that? You know, I, I, um, yeah, I was, uh, I was having trouble, Finding a publisher for my fiction, um, in in the twenty tens, um, my my previous novels had been published by by um you know, corporate. Well, my first book was published by McSweeney's, and then 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 I switched over to some corporate publishers, and they just weren't big sellers. So it was hard for me to find a home uh, for my for my fiction. But I really wanted to write novels. I didn't want to just do memoirs. I I, I, I I've always wanted to be a novelist. And so, uh, I really wanted to pursue that. And, uh, I, I met, um, a guy who, uh, a high up executive at Amazon publishing. Um, and, uh, he offered me a, uh, a, um, a deal to write, uh, a bunch of books for them. And uh, I, I bid on it, and well, because my fir- the first one in that deal was was a uh, sort of a historical, um, historical fiction, but with a little bit of fantasy in it called Jubal, which is set in the world of Jewish basketball players in the 1930s. Um, I, I, I self published that, and then Amazon picked it up, and then I published a couple of detective novels set in the yoga world, and then Keep Mars Weird and uh, and Repeat. And I just kind of bounced around from Amazon label to Amazon label, and you know, I, I, I the experience was good. I mean, they they hired good editors to to work with me, and um, you know, put clever covers on on everything, and um, 
you know, I, I had no real problems, but the, you know, the, I would say the one problem with, um, with publishing with Amazon, pu- with putting out books through Amazon publishing is that it, they weren't in bookstores. Right. So I had to like, sell. it all had to be sold through the, through the website and they sold quite a no- good number of copies, but because it was Amazon, it didn't get any bookstore play. I, it was hard to book events because independent bookstores that had previously been my bread and butter didn't want to work with Amazon. And, um, you know, it was hard to get press and reviews, you know, so, so the, the books, it, uh, operated on like a, in a separate publishing ecosystem where they sold as many as, if not more copies than my previous books, but they were in, kind of invisible to the naked eye. So how, how much of that is due to hostility toward Amazon as a company and how much of it is just like, oh, we're going to prioritize books from mainstream, you know, from the big five publishing houses? Oh, I think a lot of it has to do with hostility toward Amazon. I mean, while I I wouldn't consider myself, I'm, I'm not a best-selling writer. My you know alternate my my memoir alternative ad like showed up on a few bestseller lists uh, here and there for a couple of weeks. But I'm you know my books have not been like hugely commercially successful. But I, I was a fairly well-known writer. I mean, my early books were all reviewed in the New York Times, and you know I got I was on the like you said I was on the Daily Show, and I got press. And then the, the Amazon. Uh, Jubal got some some press from sort of the Jewish uh, media, uh, but uh, mostly it was crickets, um, and uh, especially Keep Mars Weird and Repeat. There was nothing, absolutely nothing. So uh, yeah, I mean, I think it has a lot to do with uh, Amazon. There's the independent bookstores would when I would contact them to do events, they'd say, "We know we refuse to work with Amazon in any way." So I I imagine that the attitude to uh toward my books from you know the press would be the same i mean to be fair most books don't get reviewed or covered but uh there's been a no there was a noticeable drop off for me in uh media interest once i stopped uh publishing with the big five publishers when you say that you knew this this executive who was high up at, at amazon how how did you have that um connection uh, with guys? I, I think I was befriended me on Facebook and I was in New York and he was inviting some people out to dinner and I, and I, and I joined them. That, that, I think that's how it worked. I don't even remember exactly, it was, uh, but it was, it was a, it was an internet connection. You know, he liked some of my earlier books and he was, you know, looking to add some writers to the Amazon publishing stable and I needed a gig, you know, and uh, he was, he liked my work and he was willing to let me do whatever I wanted. I got five books out of it. I mean, that's pretty good. <laughs> I mean, because in um, in repeat, there's a there's actually a, a Neil Pollock character who makes an appearance, and at, yes. at one point he says, "No one ever wants to meet me." And I was just curious if that was. Uh, is that how you feel? Uh, or no, no, I personally don't feel that way. But um, you know, the the Neil Pollock character in uh, repeat was like a past version of myself. Like I was a reporter in Chicago. I worked for the Chicago Reader. So what I did was I I incorporated into repeat, I incorporated the kind of article I would have written when I was doing that kind of writing, but about the the character in the book. So it's a little, it's a little meta, you know, you have to really know me pretty well to get the joke, (laughs) but, uh, but uh, I get the joke and I guess that's all that really matters. Well, the um, uh, when that character shows up, the uh, the Brad Cohen character, who's the main character, he says, and you mentioned this a little bit, but he says, um, uh, well, the the Neil Pollock character says, like, what can you tell me about my future? And he says, you're going to get a little boost when you start writing for an internet magazine called McSweeney's. Dave Egger is a writer who will be more famous by his 30th birthday than you'll ever be in your lifetime. Will publish your first book, and that'll get your career going for real. Um, is there anything yes, more to say? Happened. That sounds like an interesting story. That's what happened. Um, I was a newspaper reporter in Chicago, and I was writing these little parodies of magazine articles and reading them at spoken word nights uh, at you know art galleries and bars or whatever. Then you know there's a lively spoken word scene in Chicago at the time, uh, and I didn't really intend to publish them anywhere. Maybe I'd publish one or two in a zine here or there. I I knew. Um, I'd known Dave Eggers a little bit in college. He was friends with someone who I went to college with. 
and I got an email from uh, another friend of mine saying that um, really forwarded me an email that, that Dave Eggers has sent out saying I'm starting this uh, new magazine uh, called McSweeney's. At the time, Dave Eggers was kind of a rising star in New York publishing. He was, I think he was working for Esquire. And uh, if you have any material for the magazine, I, uh, I'd love to take a look at it. So I, I packaged together a bunch of these pieces that I've been writing and sent them to him. And he liked them and he, and he um, put them together and they became the, the first article and the first ever issue of McSweeney's, which you know, at the time was a huge publishing phenomenon. It's still going on and it's still doing well for what it, 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 it does. But, uh, you know, at the, at that moment, it was, there was a moment where it was like the it thing in New York publishing. And so, and then he started a website and I started writing for the website. And so, and, um, and I went to a party in New York and it was, it was really happening, especially for a literary party. I mean, there were lots of people there. There was a lot of buzz around it. You know, reporters milling about, and uh, I, it was quite exciting. And so when uh, Eggers told me that he wanted to start a publishing company, uh, I, for some somehow we came up with this idea for this character, the greatest living American writer, who you know is a parody of uh, a literary lions and a, a pompous magazine journalists making fun of Norman Mailer and Gore Vidal and whatnot. And so we put this book together called the Neil Pollock Anthology of American Literature. Uh, and I finished it in May of 2000 and by September of 2000, it was out and it was a full page review in the New York times book review. And, uh, and uh, you know, it was profiled in men's journal. I was named the hot writer of the year by Rolling Stone magazine. It was crazy. You know, on suddenly like there, there you go. Suddenly I was a, you know, relatively famous writer. It was incredible. And was the daily show, was that around that same time? The daily show came a few years later after my novel, Nevermind the Pollocks, which is like a rock and roll satire, satire of rock journalism, basically very obscure uh, topic, really, when it, when it comes to people who are really into rock journalism are really into it, but it's not that many. Um, yeah, and that and I was touring around with a with a rock band, and that's when I was on The Daily Show. But it was that same, that sort of sort of same era of my career, sort of that, that, that I guess I call it my famous writer period. I had a few <laughs> years there, you know, and uh, and that's no longer... Uh, extant, but, uh, you know, it, it, it got me going. And so that, yeah. And, 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 you know, for, for some, for some random person on a train to predict that for a guy, <laughs> uh, it just, it's absurd. Like when you, when you, th- it's just, it is like literally the most, most absurd writer's origin story that you can possibly imagine. It doesn't happen. It's, it's never happened to anyone else. And that way, and it never will. It was just a, it was a time and a place and a series of circumstances. And, and, uh, it's just how it went down. I mean, there was this interview you gave I, that I read. I can't remember where was it was like, um, the AV club or something where you were sort of saying that you got all this, like as much publicity as an author could ever, you know, reasonably expect to get. And it didn't necessarily yeah. translate into sales that, you know, no, people, it didn't. people think that maybe think publicity can do more for you than it actually does most of the time. I don't know. I mean, it just, it just didn't not, things just didn't quite go exactly like, like I expected. Right. Um, I got a lot of hype and not a lot of sales. There, there was not as I had good publicity and maybe not as, maybe not as good marketing support. There were a couple of books I published there that I feel like could have been much bigger sellers than they were, but it just didn't happen. Um, I, I don't know. I, I don't know what else to say, uh, other than, you know, it was, I had a lot of fun and I did a lot of interviews, but, uh, you know, I just didn't sell a ton of books. You know, I still, I had books that sold, you know, in the, in the low five figures. I know there are a lot of writers who would love to have a book that sold 10,000 copies. Uh, even now I'm excited if a book of mine sells that, that many, I mean, that's a lot, but it's not a ton and it's not, uh, a living. You were also for a while. You were at, you were the editor, I think, of a like a marijuana magazine. And- no, I I, no, I was a correspondent for a, a publication called The Cannabist, which is was a marijuana newspaper, online marijuana newspaper, published by the Denver Post. And that's uh, some that's something that I discuss in this new book that I put out this year. Actually, it came out in June, uh, called Pothead, 
it's a memoir of my adventures in in, in marijuana. <laughs> yeah, no, I'd, I'd like to read that. That sounds interesting. But there are a couple of uh, marijuana references in these two books I read I wanted yes. to ask you about. So in Keep Mars Weird, it's mentioned in passing that in the future, marijuana is used as the ultimate the ultimate battlefield analgesic. And then in repeat, it says, um, quote, there's even this one strain that they've developed in Amsterdam that if you ingest enough of it, usually in liquid form, it can create these incredible lucid dream states that seem to go on forever. And I was just curious if that's just total fiction or is, does any of that have any basis in reality? Oh, I don't know. I mean, to some extent, I mean, there's this idea that marijuana is, is like a wonder drug, right? That it, it, uh, it can it can help you focus. It can help you relax. It can help can heal your wounds. Uh, it's a there's the sort of marijuana wellness industry. I mean, a lot of this was kind of cruising along, but everything got stopped in its tracks by COVID. But that sort of marijuana wellness was kind of cruising along. Um, you know, you're talking about an, uh, an environment where people in Silicon Valley were microdosing LSD to help with their productivity, right? So I'm kind of making fun of that. The idea that like these these um, recreational drugs are somehow medicinal uh, is something that I wanted to believe, but, it, but it's, but it's also an idea that's kind of absurd. So, so this thing about the lucid dreams, that's, that's, that's just, fiction. Oh, I don't know. I mean, if you take enough weed, sometimes, sometimes you can have hallucinations, right? Sometimes you, you might have a, a, a bit of a, there's nothing lucid about it. <laughs> Uh, so what is so you said pothead it came out like a couple months ago or something in june yeah what sort of uh, responses have you been getting to it not much <laughs> honestly <laughs> it's sort of been overshadowed uh, i guess by yeah know. there's some other some other stuff going on i don't know if you were aware <laughs> of that um you know i published an article in the new york times editorial page in 2018 about marijuana addiction and this is an outgrowth of that um so i i i get um I hear from people from time to time uh, talking about how, um, you know, I sort of, um, how, how should I put it, you know, told their story or helped call uh, attention to uh, a, a problem, uh, the problem of marijuana addiction um, that that other people had not and uh, people who suspect that they have a problem. So I hear from people from time to time um, asking me for advice references towards uh, to, to you know 12 strip groups or, or uh, rehab or whatnot so um you know that those are that's gratifying if i can help someone else or give them a a sense of hope that you know they're they're not um alone in believing that uh, they have a problem because there's a lot in our culture that says that marijuana is good for you or that it's harmless and even more harmless than something like alcohol uh certainly more harmless than than harder drugs um and so when people say they have a problem with marijuana, a lot of times society poo-poos them, refuses to believe them, uh, dismisses their addiction. And, uh, you know, my book, while not a – I wouldn't call it a scared straight narrative or even even a, a, a warning necessarily because I do kind of escape the worst consequences of addiction. Uh, I think it's a, it's a, a counter narrative to – what uh, marijuana lovers and what the marijuana industry puts out. I mean, when you're talking about like all the, um, you know, the, the, the pandemic and all the unrest and everything, it was kind of an interesting experience reading Keep Mars Weird against this background because there is this whole plot of, you know, the revolutionaries causing destruction and the, um, you know, the corporation trying to uh, clamp down on them and everything. Like, did you... Yeah. Um, do you, yeah, see, I mean, do you see a lot of parallels between your book and, and what's what's been happening? Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, uh, Keep Mars Weird makes fun of lots of different things, right? Including the radical left uh, and 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 their and their sort of revolutionary uh, fervor, right? Um, which is just another source of societal misery. You know, the corporation causes societal misery. The people who are fighting the corporations causes misery. The government causes misery. Uh, everyone causes misery for everyone else. And, you know, really like at the end of the day, you know, 
the individual suffers and we really like, we all just want to be left alone to be free to do, uh, do our thing. Um, and, uh, you know, we all, anyone with these sort of like, uh, I hate to use the word millennial, but these millennialist visions of, of a better world, you know, they never quite turn out like we think they're going to. Right. Um, so, um, you know, it's the same thing goes for COVID right now. You know, you got people who are like, trying to save society from the virus. And then you've got people who are trying to open up society to save the economy for the virus. And it's all every, everyone's vision is destructive in one way or another. Right. And we're all just kind of like getting battered around like balls in a bingo shaker. Well, but I mean, the main character uh, in the book, Jordan at the end seems to sort of um, decide that the, the sort of universal basic income kind of system that they have on earth in this future uh, is is sort of the way to go, or closer to the way to go? So, I mean, and... it's the easiest way to go. Uh, it's it, it's kind of a boring way to go, but uh, you know, it, it is a way to go. Uh, you know, I don't I don't really endorse any system uh, or any solution because I think they all have their pluses and minuses. You know, um, ramp, rampant unregulated un, un, uh, capitalism certainly has its flaws, as does. Uh, you know, sort of this sort of soft socialism that is offered on earth. Um, you know, it does provide comfort, but it also is kind of, you know, there's no, there's no real culture and it's kind of bland and boring. Um, and, and sort of this sort of revolutionary leftism uh, that's also extended on Mars creates, uh, you know, it's kind of fun and exciting, but it also, uh, uh, can create its own brand of misery. Right. So, uh, no, no one, um, approach i think is gonna is gonna create happiness and that's the that that chaos that we we were constantly living in is you know that's what the book satirizes i don't i don't i don't have a um a preferred outcome I'm just trying to get through the day yeah well so you want to talk about some other projects that you've have recently are you um are writing i think maybe you started but you're at least writing for a website called book and film globe yeah i'm the editor i'm the editor-in-chief of a pop culture website called book and film globe uh, bookandfilmglobe.com. We, we cover uh, the publishing industry, uh, movies and streaming TV, uh, mostly reviews, but also some, you know, some original reporting interviews with writers and filmmakers and, and, you know, whatnot. Uh, so, you know, that's, I've been doing that for a couple of years, full-time uh, this year and part-time before that. Uh, and that's, that's my main, my main gig. Um, I do continue to, um, write this sort of some occasional greatest living American writer satire pieces. And, uh, I'm, you know, starting production on a new novel. My, my goal is to do it on, on start on Sunday. Cause I, I like to, you know, write along for national novel writing month, even though that tends to be a, a project, you know, something that people who haven't published before do, I still like to, it's a nice motivator for me and it's time. I'm, I'm feeling kind of, you know, the pa- pandemic has left me kind of feeling creatively stagnant. And I just need to get going again. There's a line in repeat where the the main character, Brad Cohen, says he didn't like TV except for Mad Men and occasionally 30 Rock. Is that how you feel at all? No, no, no. I, I watch ton- I watch lots of TV. I like all kinds of TV. Um, I, I, you know, I, wa- I watch high brow stuff. I watch, you know, crappy i watch reality tv i watch game shows i watch i watch all kinds of stuff i mean i'm i run a pop culture website so like i kind of have to (laughs) voraciously consume as much pop culture as i can did you you said have you do interviews personally like have you interviewed anyone you were excited to talk to recently no not really (laughs) okay no, I, 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 well, you know, I, I, had, I did mostly. I publish interviews that other people do um, uh, and edit them. But I did interview um, the the woman who published Woody Allen's new memoir. That was really that was kind of at the beginning of the pandemic. That was kind of an interesting. Uh, she was an interesting character. Uh, you know, she was a Fre- French woman who would you know was married uh, to he's he's deceased now. Married to a guy who um, you know was. You know, published Henry Miller in the U.S. when he was being censored, and all of, a bunch of other different writers who were, you know, uh, being subject to censorship at the time. And so she sort of considered publishing Woody Allen's memoir, um, you know, uh, on that same level. And I thought that was kind of, that was very very interesting interview. Um, and so uh, 
that was that was the I think that was the last one that I personally conducted. I don't like doing them so much because I have to transcribe. That's just a lot of work. You know, I'm not, these aren't, I'm not, you know, I, I, I don't know. Maybe I'm lazy. I don't know. I just, I, I spent a long time transcribing interviews as a reporter and it's just, it's the worst part of the job. Yeah. There are like pro like, uh, you know, um, speech recognition programs. I haven't actually used any of them, but I've, I've had, right. I've had guests tell me the good, you, you, are actually you, pretty you, good you, now. Yeah. Got it. You got to pay for the good ones, you know? <laughs> um, so, um, yeah. So, but I, you know, I, I've, um, you know, I've, I've spent, a lot of time in the last few months, like like consuming the culture of COVID nineteen and writing articles that are critical of of sort of Zoom culture and these stupid um you know celebrity table readings that that that, that, that keep popping up on Zoom. Those drive me crazy. Um, you know, and uh, make, making fun of uh, all, all you know Tiger King and, and various other things that have popped up during the pandemic, writing a lot about closure of movie theaters. That's something that that's been sort of a cause celeb of mine. Um, I, Cause I, I find that the sort of attack on movie theaters uh, has, has been, it's been tragic really what's happened to the theater industry. The fact that like, you know, they keep promising us all these blockbuster films and then yanking them away from us at the last second. It's frustrating. I'll definitely check out that interview you did with the, the editor. Cause if people don't know the story, basically this, um, you know, a major publisher was going to publish Woody Allen's memoir, and then they kind of had a, a revolt among the staff and ended right. up dropping it, And um, which I thought was really setting a bad precedent for publishing. Um, and so, yeah, because uh, I mean, I know Woody Allen's a controversial figure, uh, but that doesn't, you know, but it, it, it kind of mirrored what would happen at the New York Times when, you know, they, they felt unsafe. The publishers felt the, the people who worked for the publishing house felt unsafe, and it was sort of an in-house censorship move. So this independent publisher picked it up, and it sold really, really well worldwide, but also in the U.S. Because Woody Allen still has his fans, you know. Yeah. So was there anything that she said that sort of sticks out in your mind when you talk to her? Well, I mean, you know, she considered what happened to Woody Allen at his original publishing house to be censorship. And I, I have to say, I agree with her. I think that it was a kind of, it wasn't government censorship, but it was kind of like a, a soft internal censorship. And that's something that has been, uh, that is a theme in publishing. Um, and, uh, you know, I think there's a way to, um, publish it, you know, a more diverse slate of authors and to, you know, diversify, uh, this, the, uh, editorial staffs and the business staffs of publishing houses without, canceling people who those the, the new uh, crew might find distasteful you know it's it's just a bizarre you can have both you know you can have both the uh, flavors of ice cream yeah yeah i always want to just you know i want to be able to make the decision myself what books i read rather than having other people make those decisions for me yeah i mean you, i i just i'm just not i'm, I'm against censorship uh in all its forms and uh I, I think that there's a sensorial attitude on the cultural left that is is dangerous, uh, as dangerous as any sensorial attitude on the cultural right is or has been. You you can you you should not restrict speech, and that's something that we stand up for pretty strongly at the site. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. All right. So then, also, um, you're doing a, a thing called extra credit with your son. You want to tell us about that? That that is. Uh, a, that is not being – we're not making that anymore, but my, my son, my teenage son, Elijah, and I had a – It was pretty a, It was pretty recent though, wasn't it? It was in the last five years. We had, yeah, okay. It was 2017, I think, actually. But we had a, we had a podcast on Audible when Audible was you know, doing kind of original produced podcasts. And um, it was kind of like a, like a hipster homeschooling project. Basically, he and I traveled around and I would teach him about various things and we'd interview people and you know, have adventures and sort of wacky father-son interactions. Uh, it was really fun and really cool. It was a lot of work. It was a lot of work. Uh, and it was my main work for a couple of years there. And when that burned out, I switched uh, gears and now I'm editing this cultural website. So you can still find that. I, I don't know exactly where that's available. I think it's on the iTunes store and maybe uh, at Audible. It's definitely on, on Audible. Audible. I, I found yeah, it's on Audible, yeah. you know. And, uh, yeah, we did uh, two seasons, 20 episodes, and, uh, you know, had a lot of fun. And uh, hopefully, you know – 
some of the, some hopefully my son enjoyed it i don't know it's hard to tell he's a, he's, a, he's a teenager he he doesn't want to admit like any real enthusiasm for anything you know did you have any sort of production team for that or were you doing yeah it we, we we hired a producer uh independent radio producer who i was friends with in austin and then we worked with audible uh eric newsom and eva wolchover uh specifically were you know two very uh experienced podcast producers who uh, sort of saw the show through and made sure that it, it, you know, everything went smoothly. And we had a budget, we had a production budget. Those were the days when you had a production budget to travel around and make a podcast. Um, and uh, I think maybe some people still do, but uh, it ran out. Audible changed its um, its concept. They had some new management and, uh, you know, the show just kind of went away. Well, but there are there's still two seasons of I think they're available. Episodes, yeah, so it, 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 it went out. it went away in terms of like make it was canceled. You yeah. know, it's not like they're not still available. And yeah, you can you can listen to them, and they're sort of just a um, it's 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 sort of a creative way of doing homeschooling. It really like I mean, I, there were some some of the episodes maybe were better than others, but they you know I think it's a good example of like a, something productive you can do with your teenager <laughs> it was a creative project that i got to do with my son and you know i'll always have that and that was it was really cool and a really really crazy adventure for both of us yeah no i haven't listened to it but i was just looking at the description and stuff and it sounded really cool and of course yeah, obviously we, i'm interested in podcasts you know anything related to podcasts yeah well of course right but it was it was different than this like we did some interviews but it was there was a lot of like traveling and like you know sort of NPR style scene setting and like you know it, it wasn't just like getting on the horn with people who we <laughs> thought were interesting. I mean, in retrospect, that probably would have been a lot easier and cheaper to do. But uh, it's definitely wanted, cheap. Yeah, it, it was less expensive. It would have been less expensive. But we we wanted to try something um, kind of crazy and creative, and Audible was supportive of, and we traveled all over the country. We never went abroad, but. You know, I think there were there were plans to do that when season, you know, for a third season when things just kind of changed at Audible. And so we weren't able to do that. Yeah. Well, no, it sounds really cool. And yeah, I mean, yeah. obviously you have like so many things, you know, so many projects and things that you've been doing. Uh, there's just I've had a lot of I've had a lot of interesting media adventures. Yeah. Yeah. So, all right. So we're um, we're pretty much out of time. Do you have any just right. final thoughts or any other projects you want to <laughs> if we haven't mentioned them all that you want to let people know about? I don't know. I don't, I don't, I don't think there's, I don't think there's much else. I mean, I, I, I could continue to try to get people to, to go to Spotify and download songs from my band, the Neil Pollock invasion. There's also the Neil Pollock quintet. I have some, I have a, 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 in, a indie music career as well. So sure. If you have found me deeply compelling during this hour, <laughs> then yeah, go ahead and check out my, my tunes. And you have another science fiction novel you said you're working on. I mean, in my mind, <laughs> so that means it'll probably be well, but done. That means it could be done in three months or something, right? Oh, it'll absolutely be done in three months. Once I start, I won't stop and I'll just do it. And then I don't know who's going to publish it or, or when or if or, you know, why. But, uh, you know, at some point uh, it'll see the light of day and then you'll get to, you know, read my cranky satirical thoughts about the COVID-19 era. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm definitely looking forward to it because, you know, as I said, like, I just laughed so much reading these two books. So, uh, you know, I, 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 I guess e- either, um, you know, were you drunk? I mean, I, 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 don't, <laughs> I, it's, I, I don't, um, but that, I mean, honestly, like, I'm very flattered that, that you say that because, like, you know, these books, like I've said, were, were released in sort of a kind of an odd ecosystem. And so, like, I never know who's seeing them or when or how. Um, just the idea that like I would even be considered a sci-fi writer is so uh, cool to me and so flattering that, uh, you know, I was like, I was very excited to do this, uh, interview because, uh, you know, it's something that I've always wanted to be. And I guess I am now. Yeah, no. uh, Yeah. If you've been on this show, then you're the real deal. That's, that's my, that's how I see it. And no, all right. I'm the real, I'm the real deal. Great. (laughs) I was, you know, like I was, the, especially like I was reading the first uh, chapter, you know, the first section of uh, repeat and I was just laughing so much. My girlfriend finally like turned to me and she's like, I feel jealous of this book, you know, that it's mm. making you laugh so much. So Yeah, I think if you guys were to meet me in person and since you guys live in Austin, probably someday you will. Uh, she would be very jealous uh, for long. <laughs> well, no, like as, as I've, you know, 
as I said, you know, we moved here and we haven't gotten really a chance to meet anyone. So I would definitely like to meet meet you sometime. Uh, once well, hey man, you know, it, I mean, look, I'm up for meeting whenever. I'm ready. To, I'm ready to party. But you know, I, <laughs> I I understand that people are still like you know still up for keeping their distance. But uh, you know, if you want to go grab a brew sometime, just let me know. Yeah, no, definitely. I'll yeah, I'll definitely be in touch um, when, uh, but, when when the plague is over. Yeah. <laughs> Um, but yeah, so why don't we wrap this uh, sure. this up there then? So, uh, so we've been speaking with Neil Pollack about his books Repeat and Keep Mars Weird. So, Neil, thank you so much for joining us. Hey, thank you. And that was our interview. So big thanks again to Neil Pollack for joining us on the show. And remember that Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is made possible thanks to support from listeners like you. So if you enjoy the show and want it to continue, please sign up to give us a dollar or two per episode over at patreon.com slash geeks. And if you'd rather make a one-time contribution, you can do that via check or PayPal over at geeksguideshow.com slash crowdfunding. So big thanks again to everyone who's contributed. We really appreciate it. All right, so that was our show. So thanks, everyone, for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is a production of Wired.com. For more information about the show... Visit geeksguideshow.com. To learn more about your host, visit davidbarkirtley.com. Music and voiceover produced by yours truly, Jack Kincaid. If you enjoyed this program, tell your friends. If you didn't enjoy it, tell no one. Thank you for listening.